Well, again, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. Would you pray with me as we open up God's word? Father God, in your psalms, the psalmist prays not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your faithfulness, God. That faithfulness implies time and it implies memory. It implies celebration and loss, grief and hope, and all of the mundane times in between that we can mark you have been faithful over and over and over again. We ask even this morning that you would give us a tiny dose of that faithfulness as you open up your word, as you transform us, Holy Spirit, and as you keep doing so in our lives throughout the week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Stacy, come and read for us. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been in a series that we've been calling Embodied, and it's about the church, and it's about you. Specifically, it's about the idea that we do church, we are a part of the body of Christ, not to be served, not just to come with our own felt needs or expectations or assumptions, but also not only what some of us can do, which is to see it as a place to serve, uh, a place of activity, a place where we come and each individually loving Jesus now have stuff to do. Rather, we are seeing the church as a group, a body, a family that we've been embedded in, and that God actually uses the church, he uses that embeddedness as a means of transforming us by his spirit. We're not solo Christians, we're not lone rangers who all just come together to get fed and do other stuff and then go out. There's something about being together that does something to us. And this week, we're going to continue. I want to show you kind of where we've been if you haven't been with us. We started off talking about this idea of self-identity. We talked about how our culture is addicted to self-definition and self-autonomy. We want to decide for ourselves what is true. We want to decide for ourselves what's meaningful, what's valuable, what's beautiful, what's, what our purpose is in life. And we talked about how in some respects there are some good things about that, but also that is exhausting and soul-killing to have so much freedom in that way that God has actually con constrained us, and that's a good thing. And part of that constraining is locating us inside a body of people who are going to know us and who are going to have the power to speak into our lives the gospel itself. And then we kept going. We kind of branched out last week, and we talked about that identity as rooted in culture. Really, we don't just have one identity. We have a multiplicity of facets that we lean into in different ways and places in our life. 
And we talked about how the idea of time takes that embeddedness of us in a group of people and it stretches out. And eventually I rub up against other people I don't like. And you rub up against me who you don't always like. And we bug each other and our culture and our habits and our idiosyncrasies, they kind of all mix together. And yet when the gospel is also put into that, we see growth and change, mercy, repentance, love. And in further, that love actually gets directed outward. And so Jesus actually says, everyone else looking at us will know us, again, not by our preaching or our praying or our teaching or our buildings. They will know us by our love for one another. Well, I want to take us kind of one more layer out. Because as, as much as we are talking about this body in town, we're talking about you being embedded here in this body, I don't want to leave behind the reality that there's also a wider church, that we are a part of the church universal, actually what has been called little c throughout church history, the church Catholic there is a sense in which what we've been building to is that as God's people individually are embedded in a group, as the Holy Spirit works in that group, and that work happens over time, and the world sees the love of God for his people and among his people, and that happens not just here on La Vista, but it happens in many other places in Atlanta and it happens in many other places in our country and all over the world. And that happens over millennia. The, the idea is stuff happens. Like the world should not be the same because of that. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What's it mean that we're a people for the world, that our gospel culture exists in this world we looked at this passage. Stacy just read it for us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This language is language that is in many respects foreign to us. We don't like the word race because of its honest negative connotations with respect to race, racism. We don't talk a lot about priesthood I'm not Father Steve, I'm a pastor. We talk about the nation a lot, but especially in, I don't know, maybe the last 100, 200 years, so wait, the entire history of our nation, there's always been a wrestling with this idea of holy and what is the connection or not thereof of church and of state. We don't really think about ourselves as a people. Most of the time, we think about the church as an institution. Our kids think about it as a building or maybe as a service, a thing we do. We slowly try to correct them. I remember growing up, that whole, you know, here this church, here's the steeple, open it up, and here's all the people, and I could never do it well. And so we try to get our, our kids thinking about the church as a group, as people, but not as a people. We don't think of ourselves as a unit. And by not having that, by not having that sense of us being together, bound together, 
One of the things we miss, one of the things we lose is that sense of shared purpose, that sense of shared identity, vocation, if you will. But what I would tell you is that you have a vocation, but rather, rather we have a vocation. As a people in this world, we are a priesthood. We lean into the world a certain way with a specific purpose. Let's talk about what that purpose is. Most of this language we're not familiar with. The people Peter was writing to would have been incredibly familiar with it. The reason is, is because it's language from the Old Testament. This is the way in which God talked to his people, the people of Israel. You see, the, the Bible is one story. It is a story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. David is going to do an incredible job. I cannot wait to sit under his preaching in a couple of weeks when he actually introduces a series about calling and God's story. But that story, just as a teaser, of course, begins in a garden. God's people have a purpose. It is good. It is then very broken because of our sin. And things are complicated. But just because they're complicated doesn't mean they are broken completely. And so our vocation as a people to image God, to take care of his world, to be really an embodiment of him in this world, it never goes away. And so what we see as we begin to pick up with God's people in the Old Testament, God talks to a guy named Abraham from a place called Ur. We have absolutely no idea whether or not Abraham has ever heard of Yahweh God before this point. We have no clue. But we know that for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit transforms and works in Abraham. Abram at the time, his name is later changed. And he travels and wanders. God doesn't actually tell him where to go, but he says he'll lead him. And he says this of him. He says, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that language. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is this implication that the fact that the plan is continuing, that God is with Abraham, that's supposed to be good for the whole world. And so it is. The nation of Israel begins to grow from Abraham's family, and it grows into a people a million strong. And even after they're enslaved in Egypt, they make it out. Eventually, they're going to settle right in the middle of this picture. And the only reason I put that up is because this is what historians call the Fertile Crescent. This is the most fertile amount of land in all of the world, at least at this time. There's a reason that in this one map, you see Egypt to the south, Assyria, Babylon to the north. And yet, somehow, even surrounded by all of these great empires, Israel endures. They survive. God blesses them. God keeps them there. And the reason God keeps them there is because they serve this priestly role for everybody else. They are literally in the middle of civilization to introduce civilization to God and to what a world 
in the garden, a world with God, not against God, is supposed to look like. Now, even with that, you see um, in the Old Testament a lot of things that would seem to drive this the other direction, right? There are lots of rules and regulations, and those rules and regulations stem from very moral ones and explicit ones, just like we would think of as law, to sometimes really weird ones, like issues with shellfish or with, you know, cotton ray blends and that sort of thing. Many of those, yes, were intended to help Israel not fall into the problem they fall into anyway most of the time, which is to be like all of the non-godly nations around them. But so often we can get lost in those laws and the weirdness therein that we miss the other implications of laws throughout the Old Testament, which is that Israel was supposed to be this embodiment of God's mercy and love for the whole world. If you were a foreigner in Israel, you were supposed to feel weird, but you were also supposed to feel loved. You were supposed to feel welcomed. It would be very clear you were not an Israelite, right? They, they have very strict things of who they are. I mean, it would literally be as if you visited Amish country right now. There would be a sense in which these people are different, but you were supposed to feel loved. You were, in fact, supposed to ask the question, why are these people different? Why do they have a reason to love me, to accept me, to welcome me, even to introduce me to their God? Throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea that even though Israel had priests and they had a high priest, that they were in some respects a people of priests, not mediating between God and man in some big M sense, but rather in a small M sense, they would help Israel or help the world come to know God. Now, we believe, Christians sometimes will differ on this, but we believe um, at this church and kind of our polity, what's often called kind of a reformed and evangelistic view of the Bible, that there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That does not mean that I call myself Jewish, but it does mean that in the same vein as these implications for God's people in the Old Testament, I don't just lose those because I got baptized into Christ's church instead of I was born in the Old Testament. I don't lose that implication. Rather, in Scripture, there is this idea that that Old Testament people of God was transformed and sent out and found so that what we talked about last year, book of Revelation, every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven would one day be represented and all together called one race, one people, one chosen priesthood. So the question becomes, are we that? Are we that? I want to do something a little bit different this morning because I want to tell you, I know my own predisposition sometimes, all right, sometimes when I hear sermons that ask one of those rhetorical, non-rhetorical questions about are we that, I'm, I'm kind of melancholy and prone to depression and I feel shame hit me a lot more than I feel gospel mercy and hope. It's really, really easy to hear that question as a negative, as a dig, as me, you know, passively whipping the sheep and saying, get in line, let's be that, let's be that, let's run, let's go. 
I want to do something different this morning. I want to talk about some history. Because as much as we can lay out all of the things that have been done in Jesus' name, unfortunately and sadly, that are not at all respective of him, let's talk for a minute about what a people of priests have done. This is Pliny the Younger. He was a governor in the second century. So this means he lived roughly about 100, 120 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. We know about Pliny because of a series of letters that he wrote. He was kind of like a junior governor, and he wrote these to a bigger governor, almost as if like a mayor would write to a governor or a governor would write to the president or something like that to get some advice. Here's what he wanted advice about. Incestuous cannibals. He wanted advice about incestuous cannibals. He was talking about us. You see, people weren't culturally Christian yet. People did not understand the Lord's Supper. But there were rumors of a secret group of Galilean atheists, we'll explain that in a minute, who were meeting together and consuming blood and were consuming bodies in their rituals. Furthermore, they were calling each other brother and sister as if they were all a part of one family. Of course, that was us. That was the church. What further fueled this idea, though, was the fact that, and this is very, I think, pressing given the news we have regarding abortion in our country right now. You see, they, they didn't practice abortion in a regular sense much in the ancient Roman world, but they would practice infanticide. They would leave children out to die, often in very specific places where the child would die quick and they could run very quickly away so that the mother or father who did have feelings but knew culturally that they did not want the child could get away. Well, Christians figured out these spots, because again, it wasn't random. And they began literally to station people in these forests at all times so that when a child was left, they would find that child and they would take that child away and no one would find the body. Now what the Romans charged, because... Come on, we have Twitter. Things happen. People go crazy and talk about things. They believed that the body and the blood that we were consuming in the Lord's Supper was the result of us harvesting children. And yet, what was actually happening was entire generations of children were being saved and raised by the church. The love of God expressed outward over time at great cost. And the world would sometimes never even know that the church did that. Word would spread, though. And this was the Emperor Julian in the 4th century. Julian was a Roman emperor. He was frustrated, incredibly frustrated, by a group he called the Galilean Atheists. Again, us. He called them this, obviously, because Jesus was a Galilean, um, and many of the original disciples were as well. He called them atheists because they weren't worshiping the Roman gods, so obviously they have no god at all. 
But he writes as well this time to his junior governors, angry and frustrated. Here's why. He says the Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. You see, the world still operated then as a tribal society. You took care of your own. And if you had a problem, your own better be good enough to take care of you. So even as the Roman government became more and more permissive of smaller groups and cults, they had been permissive, for instance, of the Jews for a long time. There were other mystery cults and things who would have dubious theology at best, according to the Romans, but they would be okay with this as long as the waters were not rippled. But the Christians here are rippling the waters. How? Not by creating anarchy, not by protesting. No, literally by doing the job of the Romans for them. Their love was so great, it was extended outward. I love this because it means the the implications of passages like Acts 2 and Acts 4 where we see the Christians having stuff in common and caring for one another is not kind of one of those texts that we nod kind of to socialism in weird political conversations. It meant that the gospel had transformed them so much that the world would take note. And for every example of a crusade, or an inquisition, or a colonial horror that did happen and should grieve us even now. We have very, very short memories. Soapbox, side note, there are other cultures in the world that have much longer memories, and it is a big deal sometimes to have conversations with them. They will refer to things that have been done in the name of Jesus, but for every one of those, there are also thousands of countless examples of the way in which Jesus has changed this world. I just want to give you one more. It's not a statue. It's a guy named Tom Holland. Not that Tom Holland. Tom Holland is a British historian. He has written a number of books. He spent his whole life studying um, the last two millennia or so. So he's written books on the rise of Islam. He's written books on the history of Christendom. He's written a number of books on the Roman Empire. And when I talk about books, I mean the books that like mirror war and peace on the bookshelf. And so I don't read them at all, Um, which is why it is surprising that I read his last book. It was recommended to me because about five years ago, um, Holland wrote a book on the rise of Islam. And in it, Holland is an atheist. He, um, he says some things that are not incredibly kind to Islam. And an Islamic scholar came to him, was not incredibly happy, but challenged him in a really unique way. He said, why don't you take a look at what you believe the way you have taken a look at what we believe? Like, why aren't you writing a book about what you believe? And Holland was like, well, he's British, if I didn't mention that. He's like, I've, read, I've written like four books on Christianity. And, and the scholar was like, no, you're an atheist. You've said that in multiple different interviews. I'm not talking about what you're writing about Christianity. I'm talking about what you believe. And Holland was challenged by this. 
And like any good historian who's having an existential crisis, he decided to write a thousand-page book on it. (laughs) But in the process of writing this book, which he called Dominion, what Holland found shocked him. Because this avowed atheist, who was not writing some angry polemic, he was a good British person, he was kindly leaning away from Christianity. But what Holland said in interviews that he found was over and over and over again, so many of the things that he felt were core to who he was were not there because of some enlightened individual in the 17th century who had taken a stand against religious darkness. And they were not there because of some wonderful sage writing in 600 BC in Greece. He said things that he he took so for granted existed solely because of the work of God in the world. Something as trivial as the fact that a, a hospital would serve all people and not, be, and not ask you what your race or your ethnicity or your social class was before allowing you to come in and be helped. It's a very Christian idea. Stuff like feminism, all of the different activists, even the idea of activism itself and being able to stand up and question authority and feel safe doing so. It's actually a very Christian idea. He found as he sorted through thousands of years of history that he could not comprehend, he could not reconcile the idea that everything in him said that there was no God, that all of this was just myth. And yet... Also, everything in him would not be there without the very thing that he believed did not exist. You can pray for him, even though um, Holland to this day does not call himself a Christian. It's actually incredible to listen to YouTube videos of interviews that he's done since releasing this book over the last few years. Every couple of months, he does an interview because that's what you do on a book tour. And whether the interviewer is a Christian or not, because of the difference between this book and his earlier books, they always ask him, have you become a Christian? Or are you a believer? And you can like put his answers on a timeline and sit there and go, oh, buddy, so close to the kingdom here. Why? Because he sees what a people of priests do. He sees what... God does in a world, not just tuned into one specific moment, but drawn out among billions of people over thousands of years. Now, I do want to say Holland's perspective, or this, just this idea that Christianity is so cool and awesome, um, has been used by a lot of really horrible people in horrible ways. It's really, really easy to find white nationalists, for instance, who will talk like this and sort of say that, you know, Christianity, their version, is kind of the hope for the world. But I want you to think about that, too. We've been talking about time up to this point. Let's talk about range. Let's talk about a global Christianity, a global church. 
want to read you a, a series of statistics just for a second. Right now in the world, 95% of all of the world's Muslims live in Africa, they live in the Middle East, and they live in South Asia. 95%. 98% of all the world's Hindus live in one country, in India. 88% of all Buddhists live in East Asia. This is where Christians live. 12% of the world's Christians live in North America, 25% in Latin America, 25 in Europe, 22% in Africa, 15% in Asia. Oceania still holding strong there too. The individual who compiled this data uh, is a missiologist named Richard Bauckham, and he says this, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. That must say something about it. There must be something different about a faith that can say there are essentials and there are not. And part of coming into a world and bringing healing and hope to that world is being able to tell the difference. Being able to introduce broken cultural systems to an incredible God who then says, I made you and I made your desire for culture and beauty and it's not going to look like the other guy over here. And so we get a world like this. I have been so touched and changed by getting to know brothers and sisters in other countries. I've also been humbled. I've been challenged. I grew up reading a certain type of book about Jesus, often looking at certain pictures about Jesus, and to meet African brothers and sisters and Asian brothers and sisters and South American brothers and sisters to be so happy for the church I have and yet to be beautifully challenged that God is doing incredible things all over the world. Right now, today, if you want to go to the nation that is sending more missionaries than any other, you don't stay here. You go to South Korea and you learn something about an entire church who's sending generations of missionaries to places that you and I have never heard of. Right now, there are more Christians in China meeting this morning than there are people in France. 60 million. You want to go to a place that is holding strong against so many forces that want to say the Bible is not true or real or twisted, go to Africa. There are some incredible African bishops right now who are holding things down strong. Pray for them. Why do I tell you all of this? Take the circle back in for a second. I think with the best intentions over and over again, myself and my brothers, we come here and we preach God's word to you and you hear things like, go into the world, tell people about Jesus, Show them our culture. Show them love your neighbor. We talk about vocation and bringing the gospel into the reality of your everyday life. And then you hit Monday morning and you struggle 
And you don't struggle because you're a hypocrite and you're one thing on Sunday and the other thing the rest of the week. No, you struggle because life is hard, because thorns and thistles exist, and because it's not easy to take a word from Sunday and put its implications into play for the rest of your life. But what I want you to hear in town is that even though that is hard work, it is good work. Even though you may live and die in this church or a thousand others and never see what your honest, humble, sometimes boring Christian life where you feel like maybe you did okay 40% of the time and you're really excited about the gospel in part because you know if God let you in on good behavior, you would not get in. I think you need to hear that when you look at time and space bigger than that, God's awesome. And the church is awesome. What we, what, what we, what God has done in our lives, global, historical, the we that we're talking about when we say we're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a people called out of darkness that we may declare his marvelous light to a world, that has happened. And it is happening even this morning. And it is happening not with super Christians who somehow got a better dose of the radioactive spider bite. And instead we sit here and we're like, well, you know, like I'm sitting here in Georgia and I got to go to a job tomorrow and I go and worship Jesus and when I hear about these cool Christians that are in other places who are being persecuted or are doing cool things or are doing missionary work or whatever, that somehow they're the ones who got the extra helping of the Holy Spirit. That is not the case. God did not say here in Peter that we have multiple priesthoods and there is the boring one and there is the tired one and there is the caffeinated one, and there is the excited one. No, we are one priesthood, one race. You stand together with your brothers and sisters all over the world. The same God who made it so that Christians could face lions in the second century, and the same God who made it so that Christians in the fifth century wouldn't leave when plague hit their town, but decided to sit there and die with all of the old people who couldn't evacuate. The same Christians who went into monasteries in the 10th and 11th centuries so that they could learn and preserve when culture was going absolutely haywire. The same Christians who started off in Africa and made that an incredible Christian continent before any other. The same Christians who made it to China in the, 17th, in the 7th century. 7th. We think about Asia often and we only think about it in terms of missions. No. I mean, praise God for missionaries in and among that. But God was in Asia before we were. The 7th century Christians were in China talking to emperors. Thomas made it to India likely before he died in the 1st century. And you have the same Holy Spirit. And you have been united to the same Jesus. One faith, one God, one baptism. Friends, that's our hope. 
And I know that, again, when you leave here, you got to figure out lunch. And I know when you leave here, you're going to go to a job tomorrow. And I know when we sit here and we talk about announcements, sometimes it's really exciting and sometimes it's sort of, uh. And sometimes that's just life, right? But I want you to leave here today knowing that your life matters because of the God inside of you. I want you to leave today knowing that the exciting part of Christianity did not end when God forgave you of your sins through Jesus. What you are doing as the church matters. And when you forget it, let's remind one another. Because I promise you, by next week, 12 things will have happened that will make me forget that any of this was of importance. I know that, because I live that, and you live that. This week, let's make it a point to remind each other that Jesus is on the throne, and he called us to be his people. Not his junior people, not his B team, or his C team, or his full-on-down-that-list team. One faith, one God, one baptism, one people, one race, one chosen priesthood who is blessed and honored to do this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, increase our faith. Walk with us. Give us courage and give us hope. We love you so much and we feel like we love you so little. Grow our hearts. Fill our hearts. And help us stand together and remind each other when we forget. Thank you so much for being on your throne. And thank you so much that that throne is not far away. Pray this in your name. Amen.